I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Today, I want to talk a bit more about emotions. I want you to see that you can become emotionally rich. People with borderline personality disorder are often emotionally impoverished. I know that that was true for me. I only was able to describe emotions really as rage or anger, fear, anxiety, and overjoyed or happy. And people are emotional beings. Emotion is social, it's felt in our physical bodies, and it's a way that we can communicate with other people. So we want to take emotions and make them a bit more understandable. When you can understand something better, it's easier to live with, especially when you're sensitive. Let's go over a bit some familiar features of emotions first. Nearly all adults, and most children as well, have some idea of what is meant by words like anger, fear, and happiness. Even children that are very, very young recognize these words, and they can distinguish an angry face from a sad one. And they can do so well enough to be kind of wary of one and friendly towards another. If you try to pull or make an ugly face at a five-month-old, you'd probably get a pretty sober look in return. Who would deny that these words and facial expressions have something to do with emotions or feelings? Now remember, we can use the words emotions and feelings interchangeably. Emotions and feelings are pretty complex, right? They're murky and they can be evasive, especially if we try to catch them with a definition. So let's try to pin things down a bit more with some questions. So obvious question number one, have you ever had an emotion? I'm sure some of you would laugh because, uh, yeah, and really big ones too, right? Well, let's try a different question. What is an emotion? That's a different kind of question, isn't it? It's not easy to answer, especially if you're sensitive. There are a lot of things that we know from experience, even though we cannot fully describe them. So, let's start by naming and recognizing some commonplace characteristics of emotions. Emotions can arise because of a situation. Some emotions are very momentary because they arrive in a situation that's kind of passing. So let's take an example of a guy, we'll call him Jay, (laughs) who's driving his car down a very steep hill only to discover that halfway down the hill his brakes aren't working. So Jay realizes the predicament. What do you think he feels? Halfway down a very steep hill in his car, brakes aren't working. Well, no doubt he feels scared, right? Maybe some of you might say terrified. It would be nothing short of amazing if under these conditions, Jay felt amused or delighted. Fear is the emotion that fits the situation, right? So we can assume that Jay being afraid is not some kind of oddity of his character or something, you know, kind of off. It's true that there might be some people who have no fear in finding themselves in that situation, but we'd probably consider that to be an odd response, right? Or an exceptional response. We might even question whether it's healthy or normal to feel no fear when there's this immediate threat 
to life, right? On the other hand, there are emotions that are marks of character. So we can talk about people as being fearful and some other people as being fearless. It's one thing to say that Jay was afraid when his brakes failed. It's another thing to say that Jay is somebody who has a fearful character, right? Because a fearful character would assume that a person would have some sort of emotional kind of contract that would predispose them to some emotions and disincline them to other emotions. I'm sure many of you can relate to that because we do talk about personality and temperament and people with BPD often have characters with very sensitive emotional presentations, right? And this is really why we want to have these continued conversations and learning about emotions. So let's talk more about situational emotions. So these are you know, emotions that are passing, they, these feelings are reflected in the body. Situational emotions occur along with noticeable changes in bodily states. When we are emotionally aroused, our bodies react in a pattern most often associated with stress. It is as though emotional excitement, whether that be anger, fear, or delight, prepares us to act. The division of the human nervous system that regulates readiness for action is called the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. I'll say that again. Sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. When it is activated, our hearts pound and blood is distributed rapidly throughout our bodies. Our breathing increases because we need plenty of oxygen if we're going to be active. And the pupils of our eyes grow larger to prepare us to be alert. Functions of our body that are not needed during the states of high emotion are slowed down by the sympathetic division of the nervous system. For example, digestion slows down or stops because the energy that it takes to digest food may be needed for other activities when emotional reactions start to accelerate. There is another system in the body that is the partner of the sympathetic nervous system. We've talked about this before, right? This system is called the parasympathetic nervous system. It returns the body to its normal state after emotions have passed. If it wasn't for this system, emotion would leave the body in a state of tension and high energy consumption. The parasympathetic division of the nervous system regulates the relaxing of an emotion. Okay, I'm going to pause right there because I want to, everyone to pay attention to this. We've talked about the sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system. That's our fight, flight, or freeze. Many of you know about this, I'm sure. And then I've talked about changing your physical state. DBT talks about this as well. It's the tip skill, right? So you want to use temperature to change your physical state. And for people who are very sensitive, like us, we need to recognize that when we're in a state of very high emotion, we need to activate our parasympathetic nervous system response because if it wasn't for this system, emotion would leave the body in a state of high tension and high energy consumption. So let's remember that, right? That is why the tip skill or use taking a cold shower or even doing 100 burpees for time, that is why those behaviors, those action steps, biologically, will calm you down because the parasympathetic division of the nervous system regulates the relaxing of emotion. Bodily manifestations of emotional stress are the basis for lie detectors. 
I used to be so fascinated by that as a kid. Like, can that polygraph machine really tell us if I'm lying? Right? Can it tell my mom that I took that Pop-Tart? <laughs> the assumption is that a person is under great stress when telling a lie than when telling a truth. Or greater stress, right? So when somebody tells a lie and they're emotionally stressed, the sympathetic nervous system is likely to be activated. It will have an increased heart rate, rapid breathing, and raised blood pressure. And that machine is the polygraph. That's what it measures. So that is how they kind of try to figure out whether or not somebody is lying through polygraph. That's how powerful this information is and should be to you. Because if you're on this recovery journey, you really want to dig in to this parasympathetic nervous system response and look at your moral compass, right? So the more you lie, the more revved up, the more high energy and tension and intense your nervous system is. So the knowledge that emotional stress serves shows itself in bodily reactions has been around for a really long time, right? There's a story that I'm not sure if any of you have heard it, but many centuries ago in Britain, it's, it talks about a suspect being tried for crimes and they were made to eat dry bread and cheese. If they were stressed because of guilt, it was assumed that they would have dry mouths and would not be able to chew and swallow the quote-unquote truth sandwich. Isn't that funny? There's a lot of uh, bodily effects of emotional reactions that we still can't even explain, even to this day. Less is known even about bodily effects of long-term emotional habits. But evidence is accumulating that stressful living habits can take a toll on our bodies in the form of stomach ulcers, headaches, autoimmune diseases, skin irritations, muscular and postural problems, back pains, certain heart patterns, certain heart arrhythmias, and many other physical complaints. Many common sayings suggest that somebody's temperament is even mapped out in the body. Did you ever hear someone say, it looks like she's carrying the weight of the world's woes on her shoulders? Think about that because, you know, that, that saying came from the person's posture. People who are unhappy, they tend to look like they're weighted down, right, as a physical manifestation of that depression. And we can similarly say that people who are prone to anger have a chip on their shoulder because raised shoulders are a feature of aggressive or, you know, a, a sparring stance, right, a fighting stance. Examples of the way in which our bodies participate in emotion are too numerous for me to cover in one episode. However, even those few examples that we've considered can remind us that emotions don't merely float around in our head. They are as much a part of us as our bodies are. So we also have to look at whether or not we are the owner or the observer of an emotion. The ways we ordinarily refer to emotions reflect whether the emotions are our own or someone else's. We're going to talk a little bit about empathy now, one kind of empathy. If you were to interview Jay about how he felt when the brakes of his car failed, he might tell you he felt panicky, broke out into a cold sweat, felt his heart pound, 
got a buzzing feeling in his head, and maybe even momentarily lost any sense of time, so that what happened within a few seconds seemed to take several minutes, with everything moving in slow motion. All of Jay's descriptions refer to inner or our subjective experiences, right? Subjective. We understand his subjective experiences by empathizing with them ourselves. We know how Jay feels because we can imagine feeling the same way or can remember an occasion when we felt that way. But when we are direct observers, we are less likely to describe emotions in terms of feelings and more likely to describe them in terms of how they seem to appear. This is very important. So if we met Jay getting out of his car just as he had managed to bring it to a stop by using the gears and the handbrake, we will see a pale, shaking person who has wide eyes and a trembling voice. If, in response to our question about how are you, right, how he is, Jay tells us that he's fine, we might counter that he looks terrible. Maybe we're like, you seem badly shaken. What do you mean you're fine? So in other words, people's emotions display themselves through physical appearance. And here's the kicker. We often assume that we know how those people feel based on how they look. But often the two sides of an emotion, what we feel in ourselves and what we sense in others, seem to flow together so that they are barely distinguishable, which is even more prominent in someone who is sensitive. When we see someone else's emotions, we may share in the emotion so that we not only see it, but feel it. We've all had that experience, right? Especially for people with BPD, if it's not someone who's very close to us, we have all had experiences of empathy, right? So let's say, you know, you're sharing in someone's embarrassment, for example. It can be pretty amusing, right, to watch an audience of parents at a musical recital and, you know, you watch their children perform, right? Let's say one of the kids forgets their line on stage. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience. Or if you're watching a TV show and someone does something embarrassment, embarrassing, you can kind of feel that person's stress and kind of feel cringy for them, right? Like embarrassed for them. That's because emotion is social. We feel for, with, and in reaction to others. And doing this depends on our ability to communicate emotionally, right? Emotional communication. Sometimes communication is deliberate. For example, when we tell someone about our emotions by describing them in words. But sometimes... It's something that we can look upon at, um, you know, with someone's bodily reactions, right? So do emotions happen by chance or do we choose them? Well, emotions may take hold of us without our choosing or anticipating them. Let's return to that example about this, this guy, Jay, whose brakes failed when he was driving down a steep hill. It seems quite clear that his fear was not something he had anticipated. He would not choose it. The only control he could exercise in this chance situation was managing his fear once he was already quite gripped by it. In contrast to unexpected and unformed emotions, however, are other examples that we are able to invite and cultivate. For example, I love listening to music. Sometimes I find a song that makes me feel very good 
and joyful, and I'll listen to it over and over and over again. As I listen, the harmony, the rhythm, the movement, the, the strong emotions are stirred within me. The more I listen to the music, the more familiar it's become and the more nuanced my feelings are. Sometimes I choose the music that I listen to, my playlist, from among others that I could listen to so that I can evoke or call forth a set of feelings. A long time ago, before I knew what recovery was all about, I would do that with sad songs because I wanted to feel that sadness. If many of you do that, maybe you can consider creating a Spotify playlist or a playlist that allows you to call forth a set of feelings that brings you to a place of calm and contentment. All right. Well, there are many ways we can choose emotions instead of leaving them to chance. One obvious way is to control the circumstances under which certain emotions are likely to be called forth. Consider the situation. When you try to do too many things in one short hour, you're likely to put yourself into a predicament in which you become impatient and angry with people, right? Have you ever had that situation happen to you? Let's consider it a bit more. Let's imagine for a minute that you're on your way to work and you're trying to get there on time, but you decide to stop off at the post office to mail a package. There you are in the post office. You're watching the large clock on the wall tick tock. Tick tock, and the precious minutes are just wasting away. You're at the end of a line, and it's moving very slowly. Your irritation increases because one person ahead of you has not bothered to look up a postal code in advance, so the postal worker isn't in a hurry. Maybe there's a parent with a restless kid who will not behave, and this only adds to the tension to the situation. Maybe you're somebody who can stand in the line at the post office and fume quietly without victimizing anyone else with your irritation. Maybe you can walk out of the door and put the irritation away as though nothing happened. Maybe. But if you're listening to this podcast, I would imagine maybe taking a leap. Not all of you, of course, not an overgeneralization, but maybe we're not blessed with patience, right? I know I certainly wasn't. So maybe you get hot under the collar. You get angry. And once you get going in that emotional track, getting revved up, everything that follows adds to your irritability. If you are a person who doesn't get over irritations quickly, the frustration may get pushed further and further along throughout your day. You're already irritated from the scene in the post office. And because now you are also late for work, your foul luck continues. You get stuck behind a slow driver. Your impatience mounts. When you get to work and discover that you missed an important phone call because you were late. The rest of the day follows, right? One irritation after another irritation, revving and revving and revving. And finally, when the day is done, you go home. And the dog adds one last offense by tracking mud into the house or going to the bathroom in the house. You lose your temper and yell or Oh my goodness, maybe even get upset, overly upset at the poor dog. Maybe you kick it. Ugh, I hope not. But it's probably really embarrassing to admit where the buck stops, right? Maybe it's not the dog. Maybe it's your partner. You get home and you're just episode. 
What might we learn from that example? Well, somebody who has difficulty handling irritations like that, and especially if you're someone who tends to displace your irritation by dumping it on someone else, will do well to avoid the circumstances that give rise to this ugly scene. Exercising good judgment is really important. So don't make the mistake of stopping off on the way to work again, for example, especially when there are time pressures. That would be one way of choosing emotions rather than leaving them to chance. In order to do that, though, remember, you would have to be aware of and accept who you are and your limitations. There's nothing wrong with saying to yourself, you know what, I don't want to have a day today where I'm irritable. So I'm going to wake up and I'm going to plan to have a day that falls in line with who I am. I'm not going to rush around. I'm going to plan. Because if I rush around, then I get revved and revved and revved. And when I get revved, I get irritated. And when I get irritated, I have an episode. And when I have an episode, I disconnect myself from the people around me. So how can I set up my day to have a good one? Right? For me, maybe that means making sure that every day I'm wearing clothes that aren't itchy because I have sensory needs. Maybe that means that I make sure that I have my coffee that I have my morning routine planned out, that my dogs are taken care of, that there isn't an excessive amount of noise if I'm going into my workday. Maybe that means that I have a, a time scheduled to eat if I have blood sugar dysregulation, I bring snacks or food with me if I'm going out. Maybe that means that I need to plan my day in a certain way because things that come up that are unexpected might cause more irritation. These are just examples of things that you really have to think about, right? You have to increase your level of self-awareness so that emotions, unless we're in that situation of Jay and his, his brakes are not working on a steep hill, right? That's a, that's a chance, right? That's not something that he could have anticipated. But for the most part, especially people who are sensitive, we can have a choice. So let's talk about another way. Another obvious way in which we can gain control of our emotions is by reflecting on the situations in which they arise. Our understanding of emotions, they're not actually going to change the events, right? And that might be true, but it may change our reaction to them. So let's imagine another situation, okay? Let's imagine that you make an appointment and you're going to meet a friend at lunchtime. After you've spent an hour waiting for this friend, it becomes pretty clear to you that your friend isn't going to appear. Maybe you feel hurt that your friend would think so little of you and your meeting. Probably, right? That they rejected you or they just dipped on you. Maybe you made, you start wondering like, gosh, am I wrong about the time or the date or the place? Like what happened? And suppose the next day you call your friend to express your displeasure at being left waiting and you learn that the reason your friend did not appear was that they're playing an arcade game and they forgot your meeting. Pooh, man, right? That's an insult. Your anger was justified, and finding out how flimsy your friend's excuse actually was, you may even be angrier than you were before. But let's consider an alternative ending to this same story, okay? Suppose that you call your friend and you learn that just the hour before the time to meet, your friend got a call informing him that one of his children had 
gotten a concussion during a sports practice, and the injuries required that the child be placed in intensive care. In the distress of the situation, your friend could not think about calling you. They couldn't think of anything but the survival of their child, and they couldn't bear to leave the child's side to make a phone call, even though they had not forgotten the meeting. These two alternative ways of construing the reasons for your friend not showing up for you, betraying you, they don't change the original event, right? You were left waiting, your friend didn't appear, and you felt uncomfortable and rejected and lonely. But knowledge makes a difference. Finding out that your friend was playing in, in the arcade would make you feel angrier. But finding out about a family emergency would turn your anger to concern and sympathy at least it should. It would, right? If you found out that your partner didn't text you back because their phone died and they forgot the charger and they were already distressed because they know how important it is to you for them to contact you. When you hear that and it's not your assumption that they just don't love you anymore, does your anger and rage turn to concern and sympathy? If not, use your tip skill. Activate your parasympathetic nervous system because what you know influences how you feel. It should. And if it doesn't, that's something that you really need to work on. When we use technical language here, what you know influences how you feel, we can say that there's a cognitive side to emotion. So we have a physical side and a cognitive side. One major way of taking charge of emotions is to be sure that you have adequately filled in the cognitive side. That is an important step that follows your initial emotion. Initial emotion, if it's too overwhelming, turning down that emotional intensity dial and then filling in the cognitive sign because what you know influences how you feel. Okay, let's talk about emotions now as being desirable or undesirable. There are some emotions that we work really hard to have and there are other emotions we work really hard to avoid. Most of us welcome happiness. But to be only and always thoroughly happy, eh, it might lead us to be shallow. Not a lot of depth there, right? But to be happy, it's worth the risk. So in contrast, revulsion is pretty unpleasant, right? Things or events to which we respond with revulsion are noxious. We sense that we should not linger in their presence. We don't want anything to do with it. We don't want to be corrupted by it. We don't want to be distressed by it. Revulsion is something we want to avoid. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Happiness, revulsion. So what is it that makes an emotion desirable or undesirable? It can't be the importance of the emotion because even undesirable emotions such as fear are important. It would be dangerous to have no fear if you were in the presence of a poisonous snake, right? Fear is a protection. It signals us the need to proceed with caution. Unpleasant emotions are important and may serve us well under some circumstances. Would you all agree with that? Emotions signal something about the state of our well-being. 
Emotions that we experience as being desirable are the ones that signal that we are in a state that contributes to our good. The unpleasant ones signal something that needs to be changed. The signaling effect of emotions applies not only to our well-being, but also to the well-being of others. In fact, it reflects our relationship with them. We feel differently about the distress of our friends than of our enemies, of our romantic partners than of people that we don't know so well. The signaling function that emotions serve is tied into action. It is as though our emotions turn us toward certain actions and away from others. Those emotions that we experience as being desirable tend to turn us away from their objects. For example, we try to move away from things that we fear. In contrast, the emotions that we experience as being good or desirable draw us toward their objects. So maybe we try to be around persons whom we like or people who are like us, right? So just want to remember here that emotions can be used to signal. Distressing emotions may signal trouble and prompt us to act, but when we do act, we need to consider more than just the push of our emotions. We need to consider the results as well. We need to consider the big picture. Distressing emotions may signal trouble and may prompt us to act, but when we act, we have got to consider more than just the push or the intensity of our emotions. We have to consider the results, the big picture. For example, when we are angry, our feelings signal to us that we are set in a opposition to someone else. And you have to do something. Our inclination is to return an insult for an insult. Well, what does that even do? Especially with BPD, right? Because our insults are so strong. It fans the flames of anger and creates a huge conflict in which the strong will win and whoever isn't willing to go below the belt will lose. But if either of us is weakened or crippled by emotion, we all lose. Because, you know, like we, we really need to look at how we were designed to be good, right? created to be good people. So when we express our anger in a way that moves toward resolution and peace, we do more than express our emotions. Well, how do we do that, right? That's a really, really difficult thing for people with rage and BPD. Well, you know, just consider this for a minute. Genuine peacemaking, not just like covering up ang anger, right? Just like putting a band-aid over it. It brings us back into a relationship with people that we love. Right? Genuine peacemaking, not just covering over anger, working through it, brings us back into a relationship with people we love. Although our emotions are woven in with our actions, they are supposed to be counselors to our actions, not their dictators. Our emotions give us a strong sense of our condition. However, we must make insightful and responsible decisions when we act to alter our condition. To act blindly according to some dictate of an intense feeling is really unwise, guys. And you all know that. That's what an episode is. So to ignore your feelings as they point out the need to act is equally unwise. So we don't want to ignore. And we don't want to act blindly. So if we want to be wise and we want to become people who are emotionally rich, we have to integrate the two. 
Both our feelings and actions need to be brought into balance with our intention to love the people that we are in relationship with and to be healthy, productive versions of ourselves. So let's recap what we learned today. Number one, we need to have a knowledge of emotions and continue to study and learn them. If we are to journey and to you know, continue on our path of recovery, especially as hyperbolic, highly sensitive, intense folks. And borderline personality disorder, people often feel that their emotions only happen by chance, by a trigger. And like we saw that example with Jay and the brakes in the car, it can be true sometimes. However, what I've found in recovery and what you will soon come to find hopefully yourself, is that most emotional experiences that an individual has throughout the course of a day can be accommodated with choice, proper planning, acceptance of self, the willingness to venture out and change the physical state to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, to fill in the knowledge gaps about the other person's behavior. All right, let's recap. Number one, our language about emotion refers to predispositions of character and to qualities of specific situations that evoke emotional responses. Number two, our subjective experiences of emotions are on one side of a coin, but on the other side are those signs of emotions that allow us to understand other persons. And number three, Sometimes emotions occur apart from our choosing, but with understanding, we can have more choice about the form our emotions take and the way we express them in action. Finally, number four, both desirable and undesirable emotions are important signals. These signals counsel our actions, but they do not have to dictate our actions. By taking the time to look at emotions more carefully, we can have a deeper understanding of our feelings, learn to talk about them more clearly, and take fuller responsibility for them. And as we become more mature in dealing with our own feelings, if you're parents, we will also become better emotional partners for children. All right, everybody. I'm going to answer one Q&A question, and then we'll be, we'll be back next week to talk about communication. Okay, one of the most common questions I get is about borderline personality disorder and how intense an individual's emotions are and how other people just can't understand them. I often am answering about questions about why or how or how to get a partner or a loved one to understand how they feel. Like, I want someone to just understand me. No one understands me. And I just want to reiterate again that the people that, you, that love you, if they don't have the same sensitivities that you do, if they don't have the same temperament that you do, if they don't feel emotions as deeply as you do, then they cannot understand you. And that is not for lack of trying. That is not for lack of trying. So what do I mean? Even if your boyfriend, girlfriend, partner wants to understand where you are coming from and they try 
as hard as they can in their own lens or through their own lens, they might not be able to get to where you are emotionally because they are not as intense as you. That does not mean that they don't love you, that they can't understand or they can't empathize or sympathize with you. It doesn't mean that. It just means that their reaction or empathy or sympathy or way of trying to understand you is not going to be as deep, as intense as you are or as you experience an emotion. I can think of that in my own life. Jay is not intense. Not the way I am. And so when he is happy about something, he is not elated in a revving up kind of way. He's happy. And for a long time before I became someone who is emotionally rich and I could describe my emotions and I can work through them, like I talked about in today's episode, I would think that he didn't love me enough and that I, no one would ever love me the way that I love them. But unfortunately... That left me with a lot of unresolved feelings of emptiness for a long period of time because it just, first of all, it wasn't true. It's just that my version of love, what I define love to be, is just a bit exceptional, right? A bit out of the the kind of norm. And so I had to learn that other people and their subjective experiences of love, of of happiness of care of wanting to to help me when I was in these very deep and dark places they weren't it wasn't okay for me to assume that it wasn't as intense as as what I felt and that it you know they needed to be as intense in order to be connected to me not only that but I came to learn that I don't really want anybody to understand that deeply because one it's pretty cool to be unique isn't it and then two I mean it's a lot And it took me a long time to work through all this stuff. I'm sure it took you that as well. And so if I constantly want people to understand my BPD, just understand me, understand me. Why don't you understand me? Posting things on Facebook, talking about it. Woe is me, right? Dumping on other people. Then how am I in recovery? What is your recovery then? Is your recovery goal? And this is okay, right? Just asking yourself, is your recovery goal to get people to, to, confirm and validate your diagnosis or is your recovery goal to get people to understand that that's the diagnosis you have to communicate what you need and to recover through it those are two different things remember as per our episode today we don't want people all the time to constantly understand and validate our intense emotions because they often take us very far away from what the truth is because they are broken signals right intense emotions that dictate our actions are dangerous. So instead of, you know, working on that with Jay and that same kind of pattern of like, you'll never love me the way I love you and you don't understand me. And I had done that for years prior in relationships. I, you know, kind of changed the tape with his assistance and that tape changed to, you know, yeah, this is something that, you know, I need to work on. And can you help me understand what is going on for you? Like, What does it mean when you say you're trying? What does trying look like? And then I had to try to believe that. And then I had to try to try in the way that he would try in a neurotypical way, right? To learn what it is like to not be so intense so that I could have empathy. And so I just encourage you to really figure out and define your mission on your recovery journey. If your mission is to 
to have BPD be a part of you forever and ever and to wait around for someone to validate that diagnosis, even though you already know you have it. Okay. That's your mission. That's your choice. If your mission is to recover and to take the disordered off your intense temperament and be a highly sensitive person or a hyperbolic person or someone who has a temperament that's sensitive and intense, awesome. If that's the case, then you will need to learn how other people perceive the world so you don't assume that everyone perceives the world the way you do. And you'll need to start to make choices that align with that mission, which does not include trying to give to to have the biggest episode or runaway story so that your person can run after you and rescue you so they can see and know how intense your emotions are it doesn't it just doesn't include that guys all right so hopefully that's helpful in terms of intensity and just another reminder here i'll say it again it is important that you don't beat yourself up for being an intense person why would you do that if you looked around you at everyone else right? Or you did some look at some studies of people in the world. We all have different temperaments. We're all created to be unique, right? So your uniqueness doesn't have to be so interlocked with shame. And that is another conversation for another episode. Thank you all for listening. And thank you all for your patience with this episode. We'll see you next week for another episode about communication. Okay, thanks for listening. That was From Borderline and Beautiful, a production of Skeeter's Strength Mindset Coaching Systems. We help frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at skeetersstrength.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have, too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So, if you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful. Hope and help for individuals with BPD. 